Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. The first time I met Lawrence was in my Twitter DMs. He'd just stopped by to say he quite liked a story I wrote. The second time I met him was in my email inbox as Lawrence Serulis, the cybersecurity editor for the Politico team in Brussels. He's also the deputy technology editor there. Cybercrime in 2022 is almost definitionally a cross-borders affair. From the law enforcement to the cyber threats themselves, this situation transcends countries. To tell the story only through an American lens would be to tell an incomplete story. In his time, Lawrence has covered the diplomatic angle on most of Europe's current cybercrime laws. He reported on the takedown of some of the continent's most sweeping cybercriminal enterprises. So, I asked the man himself to stop by and share his insider take on how the Europeans do it. What does Europol cooperation with American agencies look like? And how is the cybercrime fight evolving across the pond? That's a very complex world of the cybercriminals, of operations within Europol. These non-government actors doing foreign intelligence. How do you actually investigate crypto? So the Budapest Convention, privacy and anonymity are not bad. International law, ransomware operators laundered money. Funds transfers. We've observed more and more threat actors. The major players behind the darknet markets. Welcome to Politico Tech. I'm your host, Mohar Chatterjee. Let's begin. When did you first hear about darknet markets? So I started looking at darknet markets uh, when I picked up the cybersecurity beat in 2016. Around that time, the cybersecurity conversation in Europe was a little slower. I can safely say that in Europe, the policy conversation and so the political conversation around cybersecurity, it has a bit of a lag when you compare it to the US. High-level politics hasn't really looked into cybersecurity until just a couple of years ago. And that was kind of different when you looked at the situation in the United States, I feel. And... What we've seen is sort of in the last year is that cybersecurity as a broad topic, but then also specifically cybercrime, and obviously in most recent years, sort of ransomware and the specific sort of threats that come with cybercrime, they've started to gather sort of real high level attention and real sort of taking over the political agenda to a certain extent. And darknet markets are a part of that. We've seen darknet markets sort of pop up and um, being taken down from a couple of years ago. And Europe has always been quite prominent in those operations, in part because apparently those darknet markets sometimes are set up in European countries. Uh, European countries have expertise when it comes to taking them down. They know the communities to a certain extent. So there is a clear sort of threat from within Europe when it comes to darknet markets. You mentioned oh, these threats weren't taken really seriously around when you first started covering darknet markets and that it might have been different from how American law enforcement worked. What do you mean by different? I think a lot of the people in policy and in law enforcement weren't that aware of the cybercrime scene. 
it's been sort of this murky scene. It's always been a murky scene and sort of, you know, with a, a certain underground feel to it. There's the hacking culture that comes with it. That, to a large extent, is something that European law enforcement hasn't been comfortable with for a long time. And only now in the past years has really started to sort of become comfortable with. Before that was sort of a, a strange sort of misunderstood no-go place for police officers or for cybercrime units. They had trouble understanding how this world actually operates. You know, what's fascinating is that's kind of almost exactly what I found on the U.S. side of things. And I thought maybe the EU has their stuff together a little bit better. Maybe they started on this earlier than we did. But now I'm hearing, well, no, not really. It took a great deal of adjustment for law enforcement on either side of the Atlantic to feel comfortable tackling darknet markets. The problem in Europe is always that you have this tension between anything that happens at the EU level, so at the European Union level, they have to be really careful in taking on security issues. So essentially in 2017, there was sort of a large operation that took down a couple of darknet marketplaces, uh, including Alpha Bay and Hansa. And on these operations, uh, the Dutch authorities were quite involved in the work. And a lot of this also ran through Europe's law enforcement agency called Europol, which is kind of they hate to be called the European FBI, but the best comparison is to say they are the European FBI. It is the central agency that uh, helps European law enforcement authorities work together on these kinds of operations. And, you know, fighting cybercrime, to, to a large extent, is a security issue. But security issues have always been the core responsibility of European countries, so of national governments. And so whenever an EU agency pops up and says... I want to be the European FBI. That's usually when at the national level, people start drawing lines and say, oh, hold on, wait a minute. That's not how this works. Interestingly enough, I think the European law enforcement community has sort of bridged that by now. So I think everyone has understood that there is enormous value in working together on these kinds of operations within Europol and also being able to talk to each other. And we've seen that sort of uh, really pay off in a couple of investigations and operations. Alpha Bay Hansa was one, but then there's been other operations involving sort of taking down encrypted communication apps used by criminals for drug transport networks, etc. Uh, we've had an operation called Sky ECC, which was a takedown of, of an encrypted chat app used by criminals. Uh, we've had EncroChat, which was also uh, an encrypted chat app. And so in all these cases, we've seen that the idea of European law enforcement working together has really paid off. And you actually see that, you know, when German cybercrime police works together with Dutch cybercrime police and they work together with Romanian colleagues and going as far as sort of working together with Ukrainian services and obviously with the FBI and the US and other international partners. So what does the Budapest Convention have to do with any of this, with all of this? So the Budapest Convention is, I feel, the broadest shared piece of international law that looks at cybercrime. And it originated with the Council of Europe, which is a human rights organization uh, based in Strasbourg that gathers countries within Europe, but also beyond Europe. It also uh, gathers governments from sort of the broader European sphere and then also uh, international partners like the United States and many others. And the Council of Europe at some point started working on the Budapest Convention to at least 
uh, come to a point where all of these different countries could say jointly, this is what we consider cybercrime. This is what we consider uh, do's and, and don't do's in the cyberspace uh, domain. And that's where the Budapest Convention came from. And uh, from there on, the countries worked together on uh, several sort of protocols under this convention, which lead to them having the right tools to work together, having their law enforcement authorities being able to talk the same language, to have sort of joint tools and to be able to conduct those international investigations. In May, the United States signed the second additional protocol to the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime after nearly four years of negotiation by the DOJ and the State Department. The goal was to improve cooperation and the disclosure of electronic evidence on behalf of the U.S. government. So in the past couple of years, when it comes to sort of international cybersecurity policy, there's been sort of a feeling among European officials and European governments that, you know, they were kind of waiting for the US or to a certain extent in some very specific sort of international organizations and fora, they were hoping for a closer cooperation with the US. And this was especially true during the Trump administration when the US was uh, much more unpredictable in its international policy. And that changed when the Biden administration took charge. And to a large extent, that's sort of to the relief of European governments who really want to work together on this kind of stuff because they need the United States. If you look at the investigations that we've seen and the takedowns of darknet marketplaces, but also of other cybercrime investigations, you see that the combination of very specialized certain European uh, cybercrime units and law enforcement authorities together with the FBI, which is without a doubt a power player in this field, that's when it becomes successful. And so the Europeans, they can do a lot of stuff, but they can't do everything by themselves. Uh, there is a clear need and a clear dependency to that extent on assistance from the United States on this front. Was there a sense of finally, when the US finally signed on to the additional protocols for the convention? Because I know that that happened in May, but there were 60-something countries that had signed on already. And to have the U.S. like lag to that game, like was there a sense of relief, as you said, or just, you know, at least someone's got their stuff together? There was definitely a sense of relief. I feel that to a certain extent, this allows the international discussion around cybercrime to also get to the next level. We've seen discussions at the United Nations, for instance. Uh, there's a long-standing discussion on cybercrime that is heavily influenced by uh, Russia as well. Russia is a very sort of strong voice in the United Nations when it comes to cybercrime. The United States, on the other side of that debate, was sort of holding back in signing on to the Budapest Convention, which is strongly supported by European countries as sort of the main framework internationally. And so when they signed on for Europe, that was really a signal of, okay, this is the US, this is our, our greatest international ally. And this will definitely impact the discussion that's going on at the United Nations level, where European countries and the United States together are in sort of a coordinated effort to try and push back on some of the definitions, some of the ideas that Russia has on cybercrime and that Russia is trying to integrate in a lot of international law happening at the United Nations level. If this is the broadest set of policies that people can agree on, what other policies govern the nitty-gritty of cross-jurisdictional cybercrime investigations? Do we simply have just one umbrella thing, or is there anything more? At the European level, there's um, a closer cooperation as well, in part because through European Union law, obviously, a lot of this is actually more detailed or more refined. And the way that national authorities can work together, there's a clearer cooperation, there's a more regular cooperation. 
uh, within the European Union. But as I said, like it, cybercrime is a phenomenon that doesn't really respect borders. And oftentimes you need to take that one step outside of the, I mean, for European governments, they need to take a step outside of the block almost to do in, uh, successful investigations. Before I sort of get to the meat of that, something I wanted to ask you, because you have that golden thing, an outsider perspective. Sometimes it seems to be a struggle for certain policymakers or, you know, enforcement officials embedded in the world of cybercrime to explain why Americans should care about cybercrime operations that, you know, maybe the server farms exist somewhere in Europe. Maybe the actors are Russian language speaking. Like, why should we care? And this, this is sort of peeling away that layer of, oh, national security concerns. Oh, you know, we should be afraid of this boogeyman. Like, why should Americans care about cooperating with the EU on cybercrime investigations? Because these are the marketplaces where illegal drugs are sold. These are marketplaces where firearms are sold. To the U.S. audience, that might be a little less scary. But for European audiences, a huge marketplace online where you can buy and sell guns and a lot of other firearms and any kind of sort of explosives, etc. That's scary to us. I don't know. That might be a quite cultural difference. But beyond that, I mean, what we've seen as well is, and this might come closer to sort of what how regular people are affected by this, what we've seen a rise in sort of exchange of uh, hacked data. So data leaks that allow hackers to then get access to people's bank accounts, allow hackers to get access to people's social media accounts that are being bought and sold um, online on these marketplaces as well, where you can go in, you buy a huge data set, and you then use that to actually commit fraud, uh, commit scams, get to people's mummies. That's when it actually becomes scary for ordinary people. And um, just by allowing these marketplaces to continue to exist, it would intensify the problem. It would let the problem grow. And this is where, where law enforcement has stepped in and said, we're not ready to tolerate this. What I find interesting is that um, law enforcement has sort of gone through some kind of perspective change on the darknet marketplaces. Because I think that the argument for many years was uh, that this is a murky world. It's very hard to police. It's very hard to sort of be present on or to understand. It's sort of beyond what law enforcement can actually control. And with that argument also came the argument that it needs to be destructed. Like essentially you cannot have, for instance, browsers like Tor that allow you to browse darknet marketplaces, or you cannot have uh, privacy announcing technology like encryption to allow for some parts of the internet to. As I spoke to Lawrence, I began to hear more of the reporter who'd covered the ins and outs of how Europol handled the Hansa darknet market bust. In case you missed it, the law enforcement operation that took down Hansa was a rather audacious one. The first time Alphabay was shut down, back in 2017, users and vendors decamped to Hansa Market instead. What they didn't know was that Dutch police had taken over Hansa and were collecting evidence against vendors and users. So many of those who'd escaped arrest during the Alphabay takedown were arrested through Hansa instead. And this raised eyebrows. I mean, I think anyone watching this knowing the the cyber crime and the, the law enforcement capabilities at that time, it was a surprise that the Dutch authorities, but then also, you know, in cooperation with other authorities, that they managed to do this. It was um, a surprise that law enforcement had actually gotten this capability. And I also think it shows that you have leaders and you have laggards in this field. And that is very much true in Europe, where 
Some law enforcement cybercrime units in some countries are heavily underfunded, struggling to even just get to the very bottom, get the very essence of cybercrime policing learned. And others are quite uh, well developed. The Dutch uh, law enforcement is a good example of a fairly small country that has a really big impact and has a really big expertise in fighting cybercrime. Lawrence flagged something that's becoming a recurring theme in this series. Reputation. The Dutch police were playing the same sort of offensive PR game that Judge Faruqi had grown so adept in as a prosecutor. The Hansa takedown left a long shadow. Even though most darknet forums go down not because of law enforcement operations, but instead due to exit scams or distributed denial-of-service attacks, better known as DDoS attacks, members of the darknet community are eternally on the lookout for law enforcement pretending to be site administrators or vendors. This is one of the reasons a lot of the shadiest darknet market trading happens on exclusive closed forums. More on that in the final episode in this series. And this is exactly what the purpose was of the operation, I think, or at least, you know, it's about the takedown, but just as much it's about sending the signal that cyber criminals cannot be sort of unpunished and, and go unpunished online. And to that extent, I think in Europe, it, it has had a major effect. Something that came out in a previous interview I had with an expert in Russian language darknet marketplaces is he mentioned that the dimensions of cybercrime activity in the EU has changed a little bit, especially with regard to ransomware, because, you know, hacks seem maybe more politically motivated than before. And that's something I wanted to run by you as a gut check. Do ransomware hacks seem more politically motivated than before? Are they still like financially driven incentives? Have they increased in volume? How have the dimensions of this field changed since just over the past year alone? Well, just over the past year, I think it's almost impossible not to take into account the conflict in Ukraine, which has really changed the conversation on cybersecurity and, and in Europe. And, you know, it's changed the view that people have of Russia as an actor in cyberspace. You still have ransomware coming from all parts of the world. But what we've seen is that, you know, the analysis on ransomware uh, has shown that oftentimes there is a political motivation. Oftentimes there is an underlying, if not political motivation, then at least sort of an allegiance or a political ideology that comes with certain operations. It's a mix of both. I think uh, before we might have seen ransomware as sort of a typical crime phenomenon uh, that perhaps didn't really involve the politics or didn't really uh, wasn't really politically motivated. But that certainly has changed. I mean, it's changed through investigations and leaks like the one that we've seen on the ransomware gang Conti, where a lot of their internal workings leaked and you could actually see and read and you can actually almost experience uh, as if you were inside that gang what the conversation was like. And it just shows you how much these are criminal networks, people involved in hacking, people involved in scams and in these cybercrime operations. But they're also people with feelings and with ideology and they're being driven by certain political allegiances, etc. And that is the case with a lot of ransomware. I feel there's almost more than just the financial argument. What are some of the major technological evolutions you've seen in darknet market forums? What are the policies that may have spurred, enabled or hindered those changes? Anything that comes to mind? There is a clear effort in Europe as well and in the US to try and get a grip on uh, cryptocurrency money flow that comes with uh, cybercrime. 
And so I think what we will be seeing in the years to come is that at the EU level, but also at national level and at the US level and in the international level, a clear sort of attempt at cracking down on the illegal money flows that go through cryptocurrency, just as we've seen attempts at stopping money flows through regular banking system. But the crypto element here is really new, and it's one where we've seen authorities sort of really trying to get a sense and get a grip on this economy of sort of, you know, dark money flowing around in the crypto space. That's going to be a major focus in Europe on, you know, the sort of the people watching this. Um, and a part of that is sort of just sort of being able to start monitoring crypto uh, money flows. And a part of it is sort of understanding the mechanisms that come with busting certain uh, wallets by certain criminal actors, etc., and really intervening in the money flows. And I feel that's something where the Europeans and the United States authorities will actually be reliant on each other again, uh, and they'll have to work together on this. Next time, we flip the narrative and talk about why regulations targeting anonymity and data privacy might be a bad thing. No. But seriously, we can't leave the civil liberties implications of the law enforcement policies we're covering out of this discussion. How much surveillance ability is too much surveillance ability? I think one of the things that is really difficult at this moment in time is that there's this idea that anonymity is bad and that the tools that enhance privacy enable crime and that if you have the ability to transact anonymously, that that automatically means that the people who are transacting anonymously are doing that illegally on the quote-unquote dark web. Until next time, I'm Mohar Chatterjee. Thank you for listening. <laughs>